Hello and welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter, and the topic today is sprayer performance, especially spray uniformity. My guest is... Okay, my name is Tom Wolf. I am with Agrimetrics Research and Training. Uh, we're an independent consulting company on spray technology. And we also are partners in running sprayers101.com, the world's number one sprayer website. Tom Wolf recently completed a study called Characterizing Turbulent Spray Deposition from Self-Propelled Sprayers. In this podcast, you will learn about the project's key discoveries, including the high variability in spray deposition across the width of high-clearance sprayers, and what operators and machinery manufacturers could do to reduce that variability and improve performance. The whole report, including images and graphs, is posted at SAS Canola's website, sascanola.com, in the research results section. We start the podcast with Tom's key message. Uh, spray deposition uniformity is one of the fundamental building blocks of good application. The less uniform the spray is, the higher the rates are that we need to have acceptable control over the entire field. So we, we tried to uh, document the current state of uniformity, and it is worse than we expected. Um, we had higher variability than has previously been reported in the literature. And we're trying to come to terms with what might be the cause of that and how to get around it. We'll dig into details in a moment. But first, we want to get to know Tom Wolf. When did you decide that you wanted to ride a unicycle? <laughs> it's my neighbor, Pete Burgess. He, um, his nephew ended up becoming the Canadian unicycling champion many years ago. And he gave me some videos of him unicycling in the escarpment around Hamilton. Astounding. Just, you know, off-road unicycling like I've never seen. This guy would ride down tree stumps and uh, hop on stones across creek beds. It was inspiring. Pete then went on to teach my kids how to unicycle. He taught a lot of kids in the neighborhood how to unicycle. And finally, I saw a used unicycle in my local bike shop, and I picked it up, and uh, I got my kids to teach me. Have and you had any serious? That was fifteen years ago. That oh, was yeah? quite a while ago. <laughs> Have you had any serious wipeouts? Um, my dad used to say uh, he's a rider, and he would say, "If you don't fall off the horse regularly, you're not really riding." So yeah, pretty regularly. In fact, I, I was telling my wife the other day that all of my jeans have holes in the knees <laughs> it's it's an expensive habit <laughs> if you could ride your unicycle anywhere in the world where would you ride it saskatoon is pretty spectacular you know unicycles can't handle a lot of slope uh, uh, saskatoon is a perfect place to ride we have i i can go on even the dirt trails are modest in their slope but the trails along the river and even throughout the city, it's spectacular here. You said you rode your bike to work today. Did you, Was it the unicycle? Yes, it was. Yeah. Good man. I had my unicycle and I have, I decided about, um, about six years ago, I decided to ride my unicycle daily as opposed to uh, take uh, the bicycle. Uh, because I found cycling, although I, I'm a life, lifelong cyclist, I love it. I found cycling to be, to be really not 
to be honest, not good exercise because you can coast. And the, the way to get your heart rate up, you have to go fast. And fast is not always friendly to the people around you. Unicycling, on the other hand, is about the pace of a jogger. And you can get a decent workout going at that pace. And you cannot rest. You cannot rest while unicycling. So it's an excellent way just to start my day. I love it. That's probably enough about the unicycle. I'm going to move on to another uni word, which is uniformity. Yeah. Uh, so the first line in your in your report reads as follows, and you alluded to this in your your introduction at the top. The uniform uniformity of a spray deposit is fundamental to a successful spray application. Why is it fundamental? It's fundamental because we're trying to get the minimum effective dose on the target. And by minimum effective dose, I mean the dose that's required to exert the control that the label claims for that. And that's related to the rate. And if we have a perfectly uniform pattern, the rate will be the same across the entire width of that spray boom. If we have a non-uniform pattern, we probably have some peaks and valleys. Now, what happens in the valleys? We have less than required. What, what will that mean for control? It means that probably some escapes will have happened there. And, and yet the average rate still remains the same. In other words, somewhere along that pattern, we have a peak. We're overdosing and that's a waste. So in order to bring the level of control up to the standard that we expect, according to the label, we'd have to increase the rate over the entire boom to bring that one valley up to the rest. And that is inefficient. That's why uniformity is fundamental. In the report, you cited a lot of previous studies on this topic. Why did we need a new one? It's a good question. What, what We did something a little bit different from the other studies. And what we did here is we used a higher resolution measurement. So we wanted to be able to measure the areas along the boom that we felt were probably new emerging problems. And it was really difficult to measure that using traditional sampling techniques. For example, traditional samplers might be Petri plates or they might be pieces of uh, square cut paper or something that you can collect a spray on. Um, you can't drive over those samples because you destroy them, but you want to be driving, right, to make it realistic. So um, we decided to use a string and the string was suspended about 10 centimeters above the ground. It was fairly taut. And so when a sprayer wheel went over it, it tolerated that quite nicely and then jumped back into position. And by the time the spray hit it, it was ready to sample. It's a non-destructive sampler that we could drive over. So that was part one. And part two was we we decided to cut the string into uh, 240 little segments, as opposed to just maybe a dozen that might have been done in other studies. And we got a much higher resolution picture of where things happen. The string data are across the entire width of the boom, including the wheels. That's what makes it a little different. It's and also, I think another thing is that the string was a, a smaller collector, really. Like um, in in the report, I, I issued a picture of a of a small, you know, of the two millimeter diameter that the string was. It's essentially whippersnipper line. Two millimeters happens to be an international standard for spray collection. In wind tunnels, they use that, that diameter. And it's also smooth. 
Um, so it doesn't catch anything that extends even a slight bit beyond that little string. So it's a very small region. And in some ways, that's a new way of doing it because um, it really uh, simulates a small target, right? Maybe a small leaf of a weed, of cotyledon perhaps. And so it's not, you know, if we had used a larger sampler, um, we would have integrated the variability that occurs across that sampler. So like, say we've used a sampler, a traditional petri plate is 15 centimeters across. So even if there was small variability in that 15 centimeters, uh, you know, a two millimeter line fits into 15 centimeters approximately, let's say 100 times or so, or something like that. You know, that that hundredfold level of potential variability, we don't record that, we just average it. And so the overall deposition is, is much more an average when we use a larger sampler. So in a way, it's a very tough test. Maybe it was a little unfair, but I think in it also simulated what we're really trying to do, and that is control small weeds. One of the things that that string let you study then was what's going on right behind the wheels. Can you expand on that? Yeah, the, the we, what we did is we divided the the variability we observed into three regions: the left boom, which was always the upwind boom the center rack section, which extended slightly outside of the, the wheels, and the right boom. Um, and we knew that the tractor unit was going to be problematic because we've we've heard this from our clients. We've seen it. Um, a lot of farmers ask me, for example, how do I deal with the fact that I have poor control in my wheel tracks? And the the, the the way to answer that question is to first understand why you have poor control in the wheel tracks, because there could be a number of reasons. You know, you are compacting it with a heavy machine. Um, so are you killing weeds or are they unable to absorb herbicide because you've hurt them? Or perhaps you're compressing the soil and you're providing new niches for germination of new weeds that haven't come up yet because of moisture. Um, you know, you might be distributing dust on the on the plants that that aren't uh, th that are sensitive to that, and some herbicides don't work well in the presence of dust. But we uh, we isolated one reason, and that is the aerodynamic turbulence that that wheels might also be causing, which is another another reason that farmers suspected. And we were able to say uh, we couldn't rule the other reasons out, but we were able to say for sure aerodynamic turbulence plays a role here, and uh, and. You know, the traditional way of dealing with it has been to put a larger nozzle in the region behind the wheels and just basically, you know, rather than boost the rate over the entire boom, which is, of course, wasteful, you can isolate some known areas. And that's what most farmers that have this problem do. And so with, with that technique, then, is that something you would recommend, the larger nozzle behind the wheels? It's a stopgap. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's an easy thing. It doesn't really increase the average rate that much. We circle back to the importance of uniformity one more time because I wanted to ask Tom about a quote from his report. He said the range was unexpectedly large, as it means that some regions of the swath only received one third of the intended dose, whereas other, others received threefold. And you said this at the beginning, but let's dig into that a little bit. I guess explain again why that is an issue for, for, for efficacy. Yeah, and it, it's an issue because we have, we have um, even greater standards to meet for effective control of, let's say, weeds. I mean, all pests, but weeds in particular because of resistance. We simply can't give any plants 
a survival chance because if they are, if they carry the resistance gene, or if they're slightly more tolerant, survive a slightly lower dose, and it sort of leads to, it, it can lead to resistance, polygenic resistance, for example. And we we really want to avoid underdosing from a sure kill rate for that reason. The polygenic resistance issue is uh, just as a brief little segue. It's an issue for the new emerging problem weeds on the Canadian prairies and also in, in eastern Canada. And these are weeds that are uh, outcrossing in the case of water hemp or palmer amaranth. They're actually obligate outcrossers because they're dioecious, so they have a male and female plant. And what that really means is in order for these plants to reproduce, they must receive pollen from another plant. In other words, there is uh, a necessary exchange of new genetic information. So if, for example, you have two surviving plants that are slightly more tolerant because they, they, they've survived in the wheel track and they both go to maturity, they may exchange that pollen and their progeny might be even more resistant because they've now got these, these small little genes of, of these snippets of information that make the plant for some reason slightly more tolerant. It's not a, it's not a site, uh, a target site mutation we're talking about here, you know, where the enzyme is mutated and as a result we have five or ten fold ranges of um, uh, resistance. That's common for a lot of herbicide resistance, but it leads to, it's a night and day effect. You can't, you can't compensate for that with a higher dose. Polygenic resistance is a creeping resistance. It comes in slowly and just continues to build until it's out of control. You also looked at the the usual um, factors when you're trying to improve um, uniformity and deposition, which is like travel speed, boom height. And one of the things you said in the report was that they, the effect may not have been as large as you had hoped, but they were still there. Can you can you tell us about you know the right height, if there is one, and the right speed, if there is one? Yeah, you know, that was really kind of a, to be honest with you, a little bit of a disappointment in the study because we, we really did think that by by doing the right thing, variability would be restored <laughs> or uniformity, I should say, would be restored. And we quickly realized in, the, in doing the study that small changes that we made, small changes to boom height or small changes to spray quality really didn't show up. You know, the variability still stayed, still stayed high. And I'm going, wow, okay. So we decided to make a, a large change. And of course, things are obscured by, by the variability of the measurement too. You know, if you do the same thing two or three times, uh, the, the results vary slightly each time. And that's why we replicate. And then we have sort of a, an, a measurement of uh, experimental error, the, the, the inherent variability of the, 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 the methodology. In this case, uh, we we had some of that. We had certainly some some similar issues, like we we had similar results uh, in repeated trials. But we were we found it really hard to say, yeah, you know, we lowered the boom a little and it improved things greatly. It did not. So we decided to go to extremes and say, all right, let's go really fast and use a high boom and a fine spray or a medium spray quality, worst case, and then let's go really slow and lower the boom, but we used the same spray quality. And we thought, well, that should demonstrate that uh, the effect was significant. And it was, I would say, significant, but it certainly didn't restore the uniformity to the degree that I thought it would. And I think what it really leads to is that in in, in all things spraying, 
there are all the variables involved in spraying are basically continuous variables. And you know what I mean by that? I mean, we, we when we increase water volume, it's not like there's some magic water volume. You know, increasing water volume has a, an effect that pro progresses over higher volumes and at some point it levels off, but it's continuous. It's a same with droplet size. It's also a continuous variable. Same with boom height. These are all quantitative continuous variables that either increase or decrease the performance of the spray operation along their line. So small changes in these variables are, uh, you know, maybe unobservable statistically, but they're still there, right? That's the thing in, in agronomy, so much of the recommendations are, they're not like, okay, you do this and this will happen. It's it's a, a sliding scale or, you know, the, the top of a bell curve. It's the ranges of where you might not see significant effects or, or can be fairly wide. But you, you're saying that even within those, you know, when the, when the effects aren't really obvious, there is something going on there. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's like this. Um, let's say... So this is an age-old debate that still rages in the scientific community, especially with new emerging scientists. And that is we're trying to find statistical difference, right? We're trying to do an experiment and we're trying to say this treatment is better than that treatment. And we want some kind of a statistical test we can do and say this is better than that. Yields with nitrogen rates, seed rates, seed depth, travel speed, all that stuff is part of that. And the classic mistake people make is they will vary the, let's say, the fertilizer rate and they will say, you know, 40 pounds of N wasn't any better than 30 or and 50 wasn't better either, but 60 was better than 30. And and, and they say, OK, so 60 is better than 30, but it's not better than 50. Well, no, uh, that's like saying if you compare uh, if you're doing a study of stairways in church towers, you you measure the distance of each step up. And you do a statistical averaging and you say, you know, taking one step didn't have a statistical effect on height, but three steps did. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, the yeah. fact is that this is a continuous variable. If you take a step up, you're going up. Okay. <laughs> so that's the wrong test. You have to do regression analysis, right? And regression analysis, you're just looking for, is there a, is there a mathematical relationship between taking a step up and the height you're off the ground? And of course there is. You know, and it's the same with all things spraying, travel speed. You can't maybe say, hey, 12 miles per hour is better than 14 miles per hour because statistically it's obscured by error. But of course, slower just, travel speeds are better. We know that. It's the same I with just, seeding, 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 seeding speeds in canola, right? We've shown that. I'm still so, thinking about your church tower analogy and all these little old ladies trying to get to the top. And if the stair risers are five centimeters or 15 centimeters, they're all going to get to the top. But if they're 60 centimeters, nobody's getting to the top. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that one. I never, never thought of one. But you know, it is the it is the power of incrementalism. Uh, you don't see the the change, mm -hmm. but it's still there, and it accrues <laughs> over time. <laughs> it seems like if you had a wider sprayer, boom, and could slow down even a bit. Uh, Maybe it's not going to be super obvious, the uniformity advantage, but do you think there's going to be some advantage to to taking that approach? I definitely think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, there's a whole movement uh, really worldwide, I would say. Um, Syngenta coined it once in one of their campaigns called Low, Slow and Covered. That's And, and they were really talking to the fact that 
it's all, almost everything we do is a little better when we drive slower. And the question is, um, you know, is it practical to do that? And, and typically my clients will say, no, it's actually not practical for me to slow down. I'm spraying more than ever. I have more time pressure than ever. Uh, and when I, when I can go, I have to get stuff done. And I totally get that. That's, that's, uh, that is so true. My point is, let's not measure productivity and speed. Let's measure it in acres per hour or fields per day, whatever you want to do. How much are you actually getting done? And I think what we're finding is that driving faster certainly is effective, but it's not as effective as other strategies might be. And the analogy that I like to make is if you if you do a, a time accounting of your spray day, and you, you you document how much time of the of the time that the sprayer is operating, I'm in the cab, is it spraying? And what proportion of the time is, am I transporting? Am I filling? Am I cleaning? Am I fixing? Am I entering data? Am I whatever? Um, you will find that the majority of the time that the engine is running, you are not actually spraying. And so if you don't address that downtime, then you are basically uh, driving a Ferrari in rush hour traffic. You will always be at the same red light as everybody else, even though you're going there faster. And you won't get to your destination faster. So you have to deal with finding a route that doesn't have red lights. You know, and, and that is really what productivity is all about. And that's kind of the transition, I think, in, in our, in, in frankly, in, in, in spray technology, you know, as, as, nozzle technology matures and and a lot of things are basically there technologies there we have to find new ways of becoming more productive the low drift nozzle was incredibly powerful you know it allowed us to spray under windier conditions and so uh we gained a lot of hours per day that way but uh, driving faster uh, results in higher fuel consumption, more wear and tear, greater turbulence, more dust, higher booms, a lot of downsides. And if you're not addressing the filling speed or the cleaning speed or the other downtime issues, then you're really just creating problems and not solving anything. You mentioned wind, and I'm glad you did because I want to ask one question about the side wind. And, and that may have been, like you said in the notes, uh, one of the you know factors that obscured the results perhaps. But that is a, a practice that you recommend um, spraying with a side wind rather than into a wind or with the wind at your back. Well, I guess you're gonna, if you're going into the wind, then when you're coming back, you got the wind at your back. But you're saying the side wind is, is better. Um, so two things. Why did that obscure the results? And why is a side wind better for spray deposition? Yeah, it obscures the results because we have... Um... You know, we have this obliqueness to the wind direction. Wind is such an important factor in displacing spray. And when you have a tractor unit, for example, with large wheels, you know, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an obstacle. And there's going to be turbulence around that by its nature. And I mean, I mean, it'll, it'll happen regardless of which way the wind's coming because the, the tractor unit is, is fairly high. But this oblique side, you know, the left or mostly left wind that we chose, um, creates a wind shadow that creates other problems. And when we evaluated the data, we said we wish we would have, it takes a quite a while to, to do the, the sampling. So our field trials are usually done by the time we know what the results are. And we, when we looked at it, the whole thing together, we said, we wish we would have driven straight into a, a wind or straight with the wind and, and had the 
the side wind effect gone so that we could really isolate this a little better. That's a mistake we made. Maybe a future study will address that. Um, but I think in reality, I think we, our results are still realistic because we do recommend a side wind for the following reasons. Um, you you actually it's more, the first reason is for safety reasons. You want to start at the downwind edge of the field, and you always want to turn into the wind as you make your turns at the at the at the uh, headlands, so that you're not driving into a spray cloud. You're driving into fresh air. Okay, and and also you can easily uh, get out of the cab on the upwind side, and you're you're always kind of you know it's fairly easy to do that. If you're driving into a headwind. Um, and, a, and a tailwind, you create much greater winds if you're driving into a headwind and, and slower winds. And and that that difference is so profound, you know, that I, I think it's um, it really makes one direction much better than the other and vice versa. I remember one field that my dad and I, we had a, a field near our farmyard and one day we had a strong northerly wind and we drove north and my dad said, I, I, the drift cloud behind that sprayer is, is huge. And then we drove south and he said, there's no drift whatsoever because we're driving about the same speed as the wind. The spray just went straight into the canopy. So because it was a sensitive day and we had to get the field done, my dad made the decision for the last 80 acres to just spray driving south. He drove empty north and just drove south and got the job done without any drift. That's not practical. But it really made me aware of how severe that headwind issue is. We're going to wrap up with three more questions. First is, what should sprayer operators take away from this study? Uniformity and is important, and we're not as good as we think we are, and we're wasting product by not addressing this. You know, some producers might say, I, I can't see the negative effect you're talking about. And my answer to that is uh, that's because you're using too much herbicide. <laughs> you know, your rate is obscuring the lack of variability. And so especially in, in, a, in a season where um, costs have increased and availability is limited, we have to make the most of what we have. And uniformity is one of those things. Um, a lot of my customers are talking about shaving rates it's not recommended but if you were going to do it you better have a uniform spray pattern all right what should sprayer manufacturers take away from this study that's a really important one because we are so compartmentalized in these silos in the sprayer business as we are in many many of our ma manufacturing worlds we have uh we have manufacturers who make equipment and then we have applicators who use it and then we have uh people in the middle who supply them with sprayer components like uh monitors and nozzles and nobody takes responsibility for the uniformity of the job the nozzle manufacturers do they they do pattern test all of their nozzles but that's a static test that's a test in a, in a still wind lab condition we need these people to come together and and evaluate the effect of their chassis design and their recommended speeds on uniformity and talk about it right now you know, we, we've seen progression in the marketing campaigns of many sprayer manufacturers saying we can now, we have more horsepower, therefore we can drive faster. We have increased the maximum speed at which the spray will operate. You know, there was one once a point where I think sprayer manufacturers went from a 20 mile per hour maximum to a 25 mile per hour maximum. I'm going, ah, you know, 
that's an easy thing to advertise, but it actually doesn't help anyone. And so I'd like I'd like uh, I'd like us to come together and say, all right, let's figure out how to make how how to minimize downtime, how to maximize uniformity, and design sprayers with that goal in mind. Last question, and then the final word. The study is long, lots of variables, lots of parameters. Is there something that you really think is important to say that I, that I didn't ask you about? One question that I've been getting has been this question of front mount booms. Um, you know, we can avoid the turbulence of the spray of, of the tractor unit, or the boom perhaps even, by having a front mounted boom. And the the answer to that question is we we unfortunately didn't study that, uh, but I'm not hopeful that it would be the answer. And that's because the spray droplets that are prone to displacement linger uh, for some time after they're released from the nozzle. And during that time, the sprayer tractor unit would drive through that spray cloud and would also cause the same level of, uh, um, you know, disturbance. The second thing I'd like to say is uh, there is another component of the study which was done by PAMI, and what they did is they did computational fluid dynamics. That's a wind tunnel in a, on a computer screen, and they were able to really show in great detail the turbulence that these sprayers produced, and we were able to confirm that wheels were a big source of it, but so were components of the spray boom. So was the, the, the sprayer unit itself, even just peripheral attachments to the sprayer tractor unit. And um, and those that kind of a study ought to be done to fine tune future designs. All right, let's go back to the, the final word. And you said a final word at the beginning and you get a chance to repeat it or or modify your final word at the end. What would that be? I would say one lesson is that slower and lower is good practice and you can do it on your farm if you pay attention to your time management of non-spray activities. Thanks again to Tom Wolf, owner of Agrometrics Research and Training. Find out more about his company at agrometrics.ca. That's A G R I M E T R I X. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Jay. And so thank you to the Canola Councils and Commissions for funding this work. At canolawatch.org, the Weeds section has lots of articles on sprayer performance tips. Canolaencyclopedia.ca is another excellent resource for weeds, diseases, and insects management. For Canola Watch, I'm Jay Wetter. Thank you very much for joining me.